We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and I want to encourage you, let's get your Bibles open if you could, and we are continuing and almost to the end of this 360-degree giving series. And what we've been learning is that giving needs to be with your mind in all directions. You give forward, laying up treasures in heaven. You give generously upward, and God will prosper you so that you can give more. You give downward so that your children can inherit a legacy of generous giving. You give inward and overcome coveting. We've looked at giving generously in a lot of directions. And what we're going to learn today is giving big and breaking the grip of evil. I want to start with telling you of an old legend. It's an old story of a Persian monarch who reigned in wealth and glory and the comfort of his palace, yet he had such a concern for the common people of his kingdom that he frequently drove, uh, it drove him rather, it drove him to leave his palace and to dress like a poor man and to mingle with his lowly subjects. And so he leaves the palace, he's in disguise, and he visits a fireman. The fireman's job was to heat the water for the bathhouses. He's way down in this cellar, so dressed in tattered clothes. The shah, the monarch, goes down these long flights of steps. He goes down to this tiny cellar where the fireman sat on a pile of ashes, tending to the fire that can heat the water. Well, disguised, he sat beside the man to talk. And at noon, the fireman shared his meager meal of coarse bread and water, and the, the shah left at the end of the day, but he, he kept returning. His heart was so filled for sympathy for that lonely man who opened his heart to the shah. Finally, the day came when he could no longer contain himself, and he tells them who he is. He reveals his identity to the fireman's son. And he asked the poor man to name a gift that he could give him, but the man said nothing. He just sat looking at him with love and with wonder and, and thinking, maybe he didn't understand me. The Shah repeats the question. He offers to make the fireman rich. He offers to give him a nobleman's rank. He offers to make him the ruler of a city. And, and finally, the fireman said, I heard you, Lord, I, I understood you. But leaving your palace, to sit here with me and partake of my humble food and, and listen to the troubles of my heart, even you could give me no more precious gift than that. You may have given rich gifts to others, but to me you gave yourself, and I only ask that you never withdraw your friendship from me. Now I want you to go to verse 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And I want you to hear the gospel, one of the most succinct, brief descriptions of the gospel that ties into the story of the Persian monarch, verse 9. Know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Friends, that's the gospel. And it is beautiful. 
and it shows the incredible generosity of God in one of the most beautiful ways. Now listen, I want you to hear this because this is going to actually undergird the entire message that you're about to hear. One of the most beautiful ways to see the gospel today in the church is when churches rise up generously to give to another church. It is amazing when that happens. And this is the way of the New Testament church, and we're about to see it unfold. Here we go, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. All right, let's be careful. Let's be students of God's word. Let's make sure that we know what we're talking about. Look what he's saying. The brothers, we want you to know brothers. Well, the brothers that Paul refers to are the saints at the church of Corinth. No surprise, right? This is the book of 2 Corinthians. People who lived in Corinth were called Corinthians. But what you might not know is that the city of Corinth was the third most important city in the entire breadth of the Roman Empire. This was an important, wealthy city. Well, if you want to know a little bit about Corinth, it had been destroyed back in uh, 146 B.C. Of all people who destroyed it, it was Rome. Rome destroyed it. And then they left it uninhabited for 102, uh, 102 years. And then Julius Caesar, whom probably we've all heard of, he had it rebuilt. And so when Paul visits Corinth by 49 A.D., that's the timeline, well, there's 80,000 people in it. It was situated on the Isthmus of Greece, and if you want to know anything about shipping and trade routes, this is pretty important. It was called the Masters of Harbors, the Crossroads of Greece, a passage for all mankind. Listen, this is why Corinth was growing so fast. This is why it was so important to Rome. It was the boomtown of Rome, where wealth became the sole factor for respect and power. Listen, if you're a Corinthian, and if you want respect, and if you want power, then it's going to be clearly and almost only measured by your wealth. Well, the city of Corinth had a sports and entertainment culture. Listen to this. It had an 18,000-seat theater. Well, let me give you a little bit of a comparison for a moment. Fisher Stadium at Lafayette seats 13,000 people. Goodman Stadium at Lehigh seats 16,000 people. Corinth had, a had an 18,000 seat theater all outside it had a 3,000 seat concert hall well what about the state theater for comparison they're 1,500 seat these things are huge it was a center of travel and tourism and sex and every religion on the planet it was all woven together in Corinth and into this city came the apostle Paul and listen he teams up with a husband and wife team Priscilla and Aquila he brings with him Timothy, and he brings with him Silas as partners in ministry, and they establish a church right there in Corinth. But the problem is this. This is not unique, by the way. How often have you seen the church begin to resemble its culture rather than help the culture begin to resemble the church? Well, listen, this is what's happening. It wasn't very long. In fact, it was only about a year and a half when this new church at Corinth began to look just like the city of Corinth. And into it began divisions of the rich and the poor, the free and the slaves, and 
and all of a sudden these cliques and all of a sudden these fightings and arguments and people liked one teacher and people liked another teacher. And Paul came back and visited it and he wrote the painful letter of 1 Corinthians, the one right before this one. It was a corrective letter and thank God it spurred most of them, most of the Christians back to Christ. Then a year later, he writes this book that we're in, 2 Corinthians. It's, by the way, you want to know something about the Apostle Paul? If you're a student of the Bible, you might think that Paul was such a, an intellectual, and that he was. You might think that he's very rationally driven, and I think that he was. But if you ever wanted to know the heart of Paul, if you ever wanted to get into the emotions of Paul or the passions of, God, of, of Paul, then this is the letter for you to study if you want to appreciate the humanness of Paul because it's his most transparent letter of all of his writings. His pastoral heart is on full display. Now, all that was just background. Get back to verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, Christians in Corinth, about the grace of God. Well, what's that mean? Let's pause for just a second because you need to know this. The grace of God here means the grace of giving, the generous giving of money. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given, about the generosity that has been given. God's grace is his unmerited favor, and it's the source of all Christian generosity. Listen, are you a generous person? Are you a generous person with what God has given to you? Listen, if you are a generous person and you're a Christian, it's the grace of God that has birthed that desire in you. Now listen, if you're not yet a generous person, you're frugal, you're stingy, you hold on, your hands are closed, then it's the grace of God that must operate in your heart to open your hands. And this grace of God, this generous giving, now follow me in verse 1, was clearly being seen among the churches of Macedonian, of Macedonia. That's the ancient kingdom of Alexander the Great, located in modern northern part of Greece. These Macedonian churches, you've got the agency, and you've got the Macedonia churches, I'm going to label them in a moment, up here at the north part of that sea, you come down to the western southern part, you got Corinth. And he's saying there's all of this grace of giving that's being seen among the churches of Macedonia. Which ironically was where Paul was when he wrote this book. A familiar story of scripture, and we're really going to start extracting here in about another three minutes the meaning of this, but I want to give you a little bit more background check. You get to hear about the Macedonians first in Acts 16. You remember when Paul had a vision from the Holy Spirit of a Macedonian man asking him to come help them, and so he traveled there. He, began, he took a missionary trip there. He started the churches at Philippi, now think Philippians, think Thessalonians, and then think about the Berean Christians who took everything they ever heard back to the word of God. Those are the three churches he started, Berea, Thessalonica, and Philippi. Those are all Macedonian churches. And it was an area of intense persecution. Look at what it says in verse 2. The church was experiencing a severe 
test of affliction. Now, I don't know what you're doing right now, but listen, I think you want to be in your word. You want to look at the wording, and you probably want to underline a little bit of what I'm going to tell you in the next minute. Because affliction means pressure. I want you to think in your mind you've got a tube of toothpaste. And if you're like the Ackley household, we never usually remember to put the cap back on. So the air hardens the toothpaste on the tip, right? So instead of cleaning off the toothpaste, what do we do? We just squeeze a little bit harder until it forces the toothpaste out. I think I told you this one time. I have a spin brush. That's what I use for my my, uh, toothbrush. It's one of those little spinny things. And I wear contacts. And I squeeze really hard and put a huge glop of toothpaste on the spin brush. And I started it up before it got in my mouth and it spun it right into my eyeball. Have you ever had toothpaste on your eyes? Listen, would you all try that today? It's really invigorating. It stings like crazy. And I've got toothpaste all over my fingers and I'm trying to get my contacts out. I'm crying by this point. And thankfully, the tears are beginning to reduce the pain. Well, I don't even know why I'm telling you this, but I'm sure it's important from the Holy Spirit. But listen, it's extreme affliction. It's a severe test of affliction. It's a lot of pressure. It's like crushing grapes. And the pressure was severe, and the Macedonian churches were suffering greatly for Christ. But they rose above their circumstances. Look at verse 2. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed and a wealth of generosity on their part. You know what a bathysphere is? It's a deep diving submersible. It's designed to be able to withstand incredible pressure at the ocean's depth. Do you know where that bathysphere word came from? came from the word extreme in the Greek. That's how deep this pressure is. Extreme bathos, extreme poverty. And the word extreme, bathosphere, gives us that word. It's, it's rock bottom poverty. It's like the ocean's depth of crushing pressure. Now listen, I'm going to ask you a question. I've been through times in my life where I had no idea how we were going to make our bills. For three years, Denise and I worked in a church. I was a youth pastor down in Georgia. And they said, listen, we don't have a lot of money. We, we can pay for your health insurance, but we can't guarantee you a salary. How about if we agree that whatever people write on their checks, their, their giving checks for the youth pastor fund, that'll be your check each week. So, well, you know what, Lord, I think you called me into this. We're going to have to learn to trust you. So for three years, I never knew my paycheck week to week. And some weeks it'd be $60, and some weeks it'd be $300, and yet not once in those three years that we lived in Georgia did we ever lack what we needed. It was an amazing experience where the Ackley family learned to trust. But it could be really hard. Financial pressure is relentless. Now many of us probably, or most of us probably, have not experienced extreme poverty, But for those who do, it's a trap you cannot get out of. It is excruciating. So how incredible is it that the Macedonian Christians gave generously, though they're extremely poor? Have you ever seen anybody do that? Have you ever seen an extremely poor 
person gives generously? When the wealthy people give big dollars to their church, it's amazing. It's awesome. The church needs it to be able to do the ministries that we're called to. But listen, how much more amazing is it when the extremely poor give generously to the church? It's the work of God's grace in them. This is the grace of giving. This is the grace of God that Paul is talking about. Generosity is to be the action of the rich and the poor, but it takes great faith. It takes great faith in God to give out of extreme poverty. Faith that you have in God's promises that he will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I'm going to give you two Hudson Taylor quotes today. Hudson Taylor is one of my all-time ever favorite missionaries. And at the lowest point of one of the times where Denise and I were just struggling financially, we just did not know, God, how on earth are we going to pay these bills? I was making $26,800 in 1996 at this church. And we came in and we knew the cost of living, that was going to be a very, very difficult salary to live on with children. But the Lord taught me through Hudson Taylor this quote. Now I want to hear, I want you to hear this quote. It's, it's, you're not going to see it on the screen. But I want you to memorize it. It is incredibly easy to memorize. He said this, writing home to his wife from China when they had no money to their name. He said this. We have 25 cents into all the promises of God. We have 25 cents in all the promises of God. Do you know what that did to a young pastor's heart? It took my faith and ratcheted up a notch. And it needs to do that for you too. So when you give, and when you give sacrificially because you're a generous giver that's been unlocked by the grace of God to give, you've got a desire to give, you know you've got how much money, but you've got all the promises of God who will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory. See, the Macedonian churches, mired in extreme poverty, show us how we can give. And we're utterly convinced of that truth. Look at verse 3. For they gave, the Macedonians, according to their means. Now listen. As I can testify, and beyond their means. They gave according to their means, but they gave beyond their means. Of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as, as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Cornerstone, I want to call you and I want to call us to become generous givers. Letting the word of God work in our hearts to be free from selfishness, worry, materialism and when god works in our hearts to give it'll often be verse three beyond our means but always of our own accord because we want to not because we're compelled now there's a pressure in a lot of churches to give churches and organizations they can do this they can exert pressure to try to get you to give 
And then there's the desire to give that the gospel works inside of you. One of them is compelling. The other one is impelling. One of them's an external pressure. The other one is an internal desire. That's the gospel. That's what the gospel of grace does. Years ago, I took a group of teens. We took, I think, 10 teens into New York City for a weekend mission trip. And while we were there, we wanted to go visit this church that we had heard a lot about. So we took every one of the teens and the leaders that were with me. We went into this church. And, you know, it's always important. If you're visiting our church for the first time today, you came with expectations. You might not even have voice them or even you know, gather them into coherent thought but believe me you've got expectations and and we're either meeting them exceeding them or failing them so we go into this church and our all of our expectations are so high we are so excited and then the first hour was the offering an hour had emotional testimonies, music from their choir, appeals and admonitions from the lead pastor, a review of the ministry needs, and finally the offering to the tune of a professional singer singing incredibly well. All of this for an hour. And we left that church that day on the way home, and we asked the kids, well, what was your experience like? And every one of them said, why did they take an hour for an offering? And I had no answer for them because I know I would not do that. Generous giving should not require any of that. It ought to be motivated by love. The Macedonian churches gave generously despite their poverty. Why? Look what it says. For the relief of the saints. Their hearts broke. Listen, this is a heart cry. And it comes through giving. Their hearts broke and it erupted in generosity for the saints. Who were those saints? They were the Christians in Jerusalem. And you'll learn this at the end of 1 Corinthians. When you get to chapter 16, now concerning the collection for the saints, when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gifts to Jerusalem. Their hearts, the Macedonian Christians, they had nothing. They're being squeezed by poverty, yet they begged earnestly, can we please give and help relieve the hurt and the pressure of the Christians in Jerusalem? Now, Macedonian Christians were struggling. Listen, the, the, the Christians in Jerusalem were struggling mightily. Acts 11 says, Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. You know how that famine occurred? Well, in A.D. 45, the Nile River flooded, decimating Egypt's grain harvest, sending prices soaring through the Roman Empire. You thought that that just happened today? This has always been happening in history. And then we learn from Acts 8, the persecution Toward Jerusalem Christians had increased, and many Christians, they couldn't get work, and they were viewed as heretics by the Jews, pagans by the Romans, because they worshipped Jesus. And economic difficulty permeated everywhere, yet the Christians gave despite 
their difficulty. There was no, if we have some to give, we'll give. They gave generously whether they had enough or not. The Macedonians, look at verse 4, were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Incredible generosity despite unfathomable poverty. What can we do in this church? I mean, there's our example of what our hearts, when they are broken, can do when they unlock their wallets for another church around the world or even in our own area. Well, I think we're also going to learn, this is point two, that there is a generously, that a generously giving church demonstrates the gospel. Let's go back to the way that we started, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty, so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's the good news of the gospel. Christ descended from riches to poverty, so the believers might ascend from poverty to riches. Our God is an exceedingly generous God. And it's difficult, listen, isn't it difficult to understand why so many Christians are so frugal with their money? How can we be so frugal, so stingy, so close-handed when our God has given everything to us? He was rich. Well, Paul's not describing physical prosperity here. And he's not describing a physical poverty of Christ. He's describing spiritual poverty. Yes, God owns everything in heaven and on earth. But what he's rich in is his glory. But he became poor. He laid aside his divine prerogative, his freedom to choose and exercise his divinity. He left the throne and he became a servant. And he became infinitely greater than that Persian monarch that we began in our opening story. God became human. He suffered for us. He died for our sins. He became the poorest of the poor, bearing all of our sins. He didn't even have a place to lay his head. Friends, before our salvation, Christian brother and sister, we were spiritually bankrupt. Do you know what that means? That means there's nothing to write a check to God in our spiritual account. We can't write a check and say, God, take this for all the sins I've committed. The check doesn't work because there's nothing in there for the check to draw on. For all of our righteousness is as filthy rags to God. Yet for those who trust in in Christ for salvation, here's what God does. He pours into their spirit into their spiritual bank account, riches, and those riches he gladly shares with all of his people for eternity. Listen, if you're in Christ, you're the most rich person on the planet. And he looks at you and he's got your bank account full with the righteousness of his son. And he looks at you and there is no condemnation. He looks at you and there is nothing but fatherly love for his children. And here's the incredible point of Paul, our generous, sacrificial giving. Listen, it makes the gospel visible to the world. You know, when we take an offering, which we do every single Christmas Eve, 
And I think for seven to eight years running, we've never ever taken an offering on Christmas Eve that has benefited our church. We've always taken an offering that's for another church, for another Christ-centered ministry, for a benevolence ministry. But that's demonstrating the gospel. And when you sacrificially give to a ministry that is spreading the gospel of hope and word and deed, listen, you're not only making friends for eternity, you're participating in the gospel. And it leads to the third and final lesson that we have to learn from this passage. A generously giving church seeks partnership for the work of Christ. A generously giving church looks for partnership for the work of Christ. You know, 18,000 people, 18,000 people came into the Coca-Cola Dome in Randburg, South Africa to Benny Hinn's Miracle Crusade. And the warm-up person, see, he doesn't just come right out. I don't know, I suppose it's a little bit like what Pastor Matthew does when he facilitates the first part of the service and then I come out to preach. I guess maybe it's a little bit like that. But before Benny Hinn came out, he's an evangelist. He goes around the world and he preaches and teaches. And before he came out, Pastor Todd Koontz came out and he began to prime the crowd to give. Now I want you to hear this, and you can get on the internet to confirm this. He assured them that God wanted to make every single person in that 18,000-seated dome rich. And that 500 people in the crowd would receive exceptional blessings. And that this service would yield millionaires and billionaires within 24 hours. For anyone who donated up to $1,000. And to motivate them, Kuntz said that the blessing would be poured out for only two minutes. And credit card machines were ready to receive the donation. And they actually tracked. They tracked a lot of these people who donated to see if all of these extraordinary blessings came from them. To my knowledge, they never found one. Listen, that's compelling. That's manipulation. That is pressure. That is a false promise. The gospel does none of that. The gospel works on the inside to set us free and to give us a desire to not seek the things of this world, but to love God even more and to give to those ministries who are bringing the gospel around the world. Friends, giving is to be entirely voluntary. And look at verse 8. In this matter, I give my judgment. He did not say, I give my command. Listen, if you're going to be a student of God's word, you've got to pay attention to those. That's an important change for Paul. He had just shown them the highest example, verse 8, of giving, the Son of God coming down here to see humanity. And he appeals to them to finish what they started a year ago, verse 10, when they began this collection for the Jerusalem saints. And what he's saying is, listen, be generous. The Christians in Jerusalem need your, your gracious gift. Our God is generous. He's going to supply everything. You are their partners for the gospel. It doesn't matter that hundreds of miles separate you. When a church around the world comes to your attention and God moves on your heart, be generous and give. That's what partnership looks like. And let's see it in verse 13. 
For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no God. That's partnership. That's church to church partnership. This is what it looks like. And you can listen to it, you can hear it in Romans 15, which Paul wrote when he was in Corinth. And he says this, I am going to, to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. How did he get that aid? Look, for Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution. Achaia is Corinth. To make some contribution for the poor among the saints of Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. Underline that. They wanted to do it, but they knew their responsibility. They owed it. When God brings a church that is in need to your attention, he's bringing it for a reason. He's going to give you what you need to be able to partner and help them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings and the Jews' spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Listen, the Macedonian churches, the Corinthian church, they were made mostly of Gentiles. And Paul is saying, listen, the, pro the, the spiritual prosperity came from the Jews to you, so let your material prosperity come from you to them. Church to church partnership. You ready? Here's what it means. It's when you have the glad responsibility to bear for one another. Do you hear that? Church to church partnership occurs when God brings it to your attention. And you have inwardly a glad responsibility to bear their burdens. They wanted to give the Macedonian and the Corinthian church. They wanted to give to the suffering church in Jerusalem. And they owed it. They were obligated. When a church is blessed materially, they should share it with others who aren't. And the day may come when there's a reversal. And when churches gladly give to one another, there is no one burdened. Verse 15, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever, whoever gathered little had no God. You know what that's called? That's called the church living by a zero-sum balance. You know what that means? It means that why have millions of dollars in your bank account when there's churches around the world that are desperately in extreme poverty? And they can't even bring the gospel of hope because their people are suffering so greatly. Well, you've got three million in the bank, but you've got destitute Christians. Free up the money and partner and gladly, responsibly bear their burdens. That's zero-sum balancing. And yes, there's wisdom in a savings account. Listen, God, God brought Joseph to Egypt. Because he knew there was a seven-year famine coming, and Joseph gave that vision through, God gave that vision through Joseph to the Pharaoh. They saved up, and it saved the Israelites from dying of starvation. So yes, there is good in savings. Yet what purpose is there in having a million dollars in the bank when the money can further the gospel? around the world and break the grip of evil, both here in our Jerusalem, Easton, 
Lehigh Valley or in the Judea and Samaria of our country, this is national missions, or the DRC of the world, let's just take the money and gladly, responsibly bear one another's burdens. Listen, this is why we give generously. This is why I'm unashamedly saying give generously to this church. Give generously wherever God tells you to give because the monies are going to further the cause of the gospel. You know, when I was mapping out this sermon series a couple months ago, I deliberately placed this sermon on the weekend of our semi-annual meeting where we're going to decide tomorrow whether we're going to give $250,000 to the Restoring Hope Ministry in Jindu DRC. And the reason I did that, listen, I want you to hear this. The reason that I did this, the reason I timed this sermon to this weekend is so that the Word of God can teach us and that the Word of God can move us in His grace so that the Word of God can guide us, whether it's the DRC or anywhere else in Lehigh Valley or in this nation or around the world, can free our church to give and to partner gladly for the gospel. If you were to sit down and talk to me, and I know, you know, I wish everyone here, I got to tell you the truth. You know, I, I have to preach. And yes, there's things I like about preaching. But you know what? My favorite time is when I move my life group. My favorite time is when I'm discipling a few guys. My favorite time is when I'm counseling. My favorite time is when I'm in your front room and we're just talking about Christ. We're talking about the word of God. I, I so prefer that. This is important. I get it. I do it. I love it. But my favorite ministry is personal ministry. And if I could sit down with every one of you, you could get to know me a little bit more, and I would love to get to know you more. You, I think you're going to find out really quickly that Tim Ackley has a very simple faith. There's not a lot of complication in my faith. Not a lot of complexity been informed by a lot of people. God has built it through his word. He's brought me through, along with my wife, through a lot of experiences where he's proven himself over and over. But again, Hudson Taylor has been so amazingly influential in my life. He said this, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supplies. Do you believe that? Well, one person does. Do you believe that? God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supplies. His supply is confirmation of his vision. It always is. There's never a work that God has wanted to do where he did not supply. Never. Not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament, and not in church history since. And there never will be. That is simple faith, and we need to have that kind of faith. And he doesn't poof money into our church's account where it mysteriously appears. He stirs his saints who give generously, occasionally even stirring unbelievers to give. And if we all became generous givers, and I hope you can hear this, if we, if we all became generous givers, there would not ever be a ministry in this church that would lack its funding. And I have never, ever seen an exception to it. How could there be? 
friends, be motivated by the Macedonian churches who gave so much despite being caught up in the crushing grip of deep poverty. Now listen, give generously because the grace of God is producing that desire in you. It's if you're growing in Christ, that's being produced in your heart. Give generously because the gospel of Jesus Christ is our example. Though he was rich, he became poor so that we who are poor to become rich. Give generously and partner for the gospel because we can break the grip of evil around the world. Amen.